Uh-oh, here comes trouble. Yes, I am recording, so. Jane, your face is about as big as I think anyone would ever want to see it. <laughs> Look at that. It's so funny. You're muted, but I think that's good for now. <laughs> so. All right, now Kathy has changed to Bob Amiote for some reason. No, Kathy Amiote, and then you got an empty Kathy Amiote in the picture. That's okay, it'll make our attendance look better. Still muted though, Kathy. Yay! Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I'm gonna go turn my other one off and I'll be back. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Jane, is Dwight with you? You're, st you're still muted, Jane. <laughs> well, you let us know when you want us to start, uh, Damon. Okay. If you're doing the recording, that. that's nice that you can record because then I don't have to take the thumb drive over to the. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. And I thought that I needed to be the host to record, but it looks like I don't. So just kind of scary because that would seem to indicate that anyone could record any of these meetings. Yeah, that. Which I don't well, really like very you know, much. Because I signed in, I signed in with your name when I, whenever mm -hmm. I, I don't know why, but, but whenever I, you know, log into this, it's always your name. And then I have to change my name once. Yeah, because that's just like that's the name associated with the account. Okay. So just automatic, it just automatically generates that name. Yeah. So, but uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, I'm going to say we go ahead and get started now that everyone is in their uh, in their proper places. Uh, the, you know, D Dwight and Jane, do you ever think about sitting like flipping seats? Because you always sit, because that's your order. Dwight's on the on the right, Jane's on the left. But at any rate, <laughs> so this is a forum. This is the second of our three-part um, exploration of the Gospel of Matthew, led by uh, Dr. Dan Deffenbaugh. I'm Damon Jensen-Heitman, one of the pastors at uh, First Presbyterian Church in Hastings, Nebraska. As I said, this is part two of three, taking a look at the Gospel of Matthew and, and identifying the things that set it apart from the other Gospels, particularly the other two synoptic Gospels, uh, which I remember learning means one lens, but uh, I could be incorrect about that. So, uh, Dan, I'm going to say whenever you're ready, go ahead and, and take off. Okay, let me see. Uh, thank you, Damon. Uh, I wanted to just remind us where we've, where we've been, and this is really important for us to, um, and let me know if you can't hear me. I, I hope I'm okay. I bought a new microphone and everything, but 
You know, Damon used the term synoptic gospels, and uh, I think it's important to remember that uh, we can read three of the gospels together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're known as the synoptics. You know, they, uh, they can be seen and read together. Uh, in today's uh, language or parlance, we might say that Luke and Matthew did a pretty good uh, uh, <laughs> plagiarism job on Mark. When they wrote their gospels, Luke had Mark in front of him and he had this other source called Q, which is a, a, a list of sayings. And then Luke also had some material that was unique to the community that he was writing to. So there's material that you can only find in Luke, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. The same is true with Matthew. When Matthew wrote his gospel, he had Mark in front of him. He also had a list of sayings called Q, but then there's also material that you can only find in Matthew. And that's what we're, we're looking at uh, today because it's gonna be that material that really sets Matthew apart um, in terms of what he is trying to get across to his audience. Uh, we know that when we talk about gospels, the Greek word is uh, euangelion, E-U-A-N-G-E-L-I-O-N. Uh, and I always like to tell my students that, you know, uh, Greek is such a great language. Everybody wants to learn Latin because they think it's going to help them in the medical profession. But I think Greek is so foundational to the way we think and the way, you know, the way we speak. But when you have that E-U prefix, it usually means good. And then the root angel means messenger. So this is the good news, the good message. Uh, Matthew obviously felt that there were aspects of the good message that could not be left out. And those involved uh, aspects of Jesus' life that placed him in a particular context. What was important for Matthew is that first, Jesus be recognized as the Messiah, and I'll talk about that in a second, that he be recognized as uh, falling in line with the Jewish prophets, but also uh, having literally a bloodline that goes all the way back to King David and all the way back uh, to Abraham. And that's where we're gonna pick up today as well. But there are other aspects of Matthew's gospel that, are, that we talked about last time the M material, we're calling it M, uh, seems to have come from a community whose original source in preaching was the Apostle Peter. Uh, you know that in, in uh, Matthew, I think it's Matthew 16, correct me if I'm wrong, when Jesus asked Peter, who am I? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus responds by saying something utterly unique. And you, Peter, Petra, which means rock in Greek, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. Several things are important there. Church, ecclesia is the, the word uh, that appears in Matthew, but nowhere else in the gospels. And then more importantly, this is the text that the Roman Catholic church uh, uses to uh, legitimize or justify uh, their line of succession of popes that go all the way back to what they believe is the first Pope being announced right here by Jesus. Uh, Peter is the rock on which the church would be built. And so uh, there is a strong Petrine uh, community that we're talking about, most likely uh, 
situated, it, you know, it had its source in either Antioch, Syria, but some scholars today are, you know, more recent scholars are saying maybe even around um, Sepphoris and the Northern Galilee uh, area where Jesus was from. Uh, other aspects of the gospel that we talked about, we, the, Jesus comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, making it all the more stringent upon Christians. So there is obviously when, you know, whoever put these gospels together and now Kathy Amio last week, you said, I, I want to know about this Irenaeus guy. But what they did was something quite remarkable because they covered the breadth of what we might call Orthodox Christianity. They threw out Gnostic gospels, the gospel of Thomas well, or the gospel of truth or the gospel of Mary, but they kept gospels that seemed to be true to the, um, uh, the narrative that had remained alive for a good 175, uh, well, 150 years after, um, after Jesus. One of the things that was important about that is that there was this common material, Mark and Q, but there was also this aspect of the gospels that uh, reflected, you, you might call it a continuum of various types of Christianity. Uh, we have in the early centuries of the church or the early decades, excuse me, of the church, a very Jewish Christianity. This idea that in order for people to follow Jesus, they must be Jews. Now this meant in some cases, we've already seen this in Paul's letters that there were, if men wanted to become baptized, they had to first become circumcised. And as you know, I've said before, that's not the best marketing strategy. You know, <laughs> it was Paul who, who threw out circumcision, but there were still people uh, in the church who were wanting to maintain that, no, no, you have to be a Jew if you're going to follow the Jewish Messiah. That is the community that Matthew represents. Others are saying, no, there's a new covenant that's been established. Baptism replaces circumcision. And, and it would be a much more Gentile-oriented uh, type of, of gospel. And that's, that's the community that Luke is writing to. And John, of course, uh, his gospel does not have these, these three sources that we're talking about or uh, three or four common sources. John is a complete outlier, but his gospel uh, furnishes so much theology for us that uh, it's, it just stands alone, uh, many think, as the pinnacle of, of Christian theology. So let me stop and see if there are any questions that were lingering in your mind from last week. And if you're muted, you'll need to unmute and ask those questions. And questions are welcome and comments. Okay. I'm looking around. Hello, Anne. I didn't see you come in. Good to see you. Well, all right. Let me move on down uh, to our... The material that we're looking at actually this morning uh, is in a, well, this morning when I say, uh, I mean this morning of worship, Matthew 25, the material last week was M material. The material next week will be M material, but the material that we look at this week is also found in Luke. This is the, uh, the, the parable of the talents. You can read it in Luke, you can read it in Matthew. Um, so I do not believe it's in Mark, but I'll, I could be mistaken on that. So most likely that came from Q material, but these things are kind of, you know, 
pieced together almost like a, a, a you know, I can't remember what we call that, a collage, you know, where you put pieces uh, together and ordered in such a way that it's going to meet the needs of the community to which they're writing. So Matthew, was it written first? No, it wasn't. It was written probably around 85 or towards the end of the first century, but it comes first in the, um, you know, in the first four gospels because it is, has theological precedence, not necessarily historical, uh, chronological precedence, but it provides this wonderful bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because if the, this emerging Christianity is anything, it wants to make clear that it has its roots, deep roots, you know, like a tree beside the river, you know, in uh, the tradition of the Jews. They are not trying to start a brand new uh, tradition. They are uh, basically reforming and picking up on the Jewish tradition. Some want to reform it more than others. Matthew, less so. So today, uh, I'd like to look at this M material that we're talking about. And uh, I've provides you a couple of, of Rembrandt's uh, uh, paintings here. Rembrandt was really big on, on the uh, birth stories. He's got several variations of uh, the angel appearing to Joseph. Um, but I'm gonna read something that's gonna be kind of tedious, but it's important for the Gospel of Matthew. And if you compare it to the Gospel of Luke, you will see that this genealogy, we're looking at Matthew uh, chapters, chapter one, verses one through 25, but more specifically now, verses one through 17, uh, you will find that there's a genealogy in Luke as well. Luke doesn't begin with a genealogy. Matthew does. Uh, so let me just put that in context. Why a genealogy? Uh, after the Babylonian captivity, now this would have been 539 onward, BCE onward, it was very important for Jews, well, even during the Babylonian captivity, to try to distinguish themselves from Gentiles. It was a way that they maintained their culture without assimilating. They did not want intermarriage. They did not want to eat the food of the Gentiles. So it became very important at that time uh, to be able, or afterwards, to be able to, to trace your lineage back through this, this father, then this father, then this father, then this father, going all the way back. And we have a, a, a unsullied line that is purely Jew Jewish. It has not in any way been um, uh, mixed with Gentile blood. That was a, a tradition, one more conservative aspect of Judaism after the Babylonian captivity. So when you read the Old Testament and you see all of these genealogies, this one begat that one, and this one begat that one, and this one begat that one. That's typically um, a text that was written after the Babylonian captivity called the priestly tradition, trying to establish the pure Jewish lineage of the person in question. So it's no mistake here, it's no coincidence, I should say, that, that um, Matthew in trying to establish Jesus as the Jewish Messiah must first begin with his you know, very conservative uh, readers by establishing Jesus' um, purity as a Jew. 
And the way he does it, it's very interesting. And, and please uh, stick with me while I read this. This is usually a place where people like to skip over. Chap chapter one, verse one, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. So three things there, Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, the King of Israel, the first Mashiach, uh, literally means anointed one, was David. And then in at least the Southern tradition of the Jewish tradition, all of the kings after David would have been in the line of David. You have Solomon, you have Rehoboam on down the line. And it's important uh, that, you know, when they came to the, the, uh, the throne and there was a coronation ceremony, uh, you can read the Psalm, I think we did at one point, we, you can read the Psalm that was sung at their coronation, Psalm two, today I have begotten you, you are my son. That was a, a, a public recognition that this was Mashiach. This was the anointed one of Israel through whom God spoke, the representative of God's covenant. Well, by the time of Jesus, there were no Jewish kings anymore, but the Jews were still awaiting the coming of a Messiah. This is the, uh, the more anglicized version of it, of the term. They're waiting the coming of a Messiah that would fulfill you know, all of the hopes of the prophets and the people prior to this. So Matthew is making the point, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's a good Jewish boy. Uh, he, he falls in the line of David and he is uh, the Messiah. We can trace his lineage back to Abraham. We can trace it all the way back to, um, uh, to David as well. Uh, Abraham, was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Interesting little commentary there. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Ammon, Aminadab, excuse me, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Sal, uh, Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Um, you note here, uh, there are some names of women that are thrown in. And this is a, a what, what, what we might say, a digression from the regular genealogies. Why, for example, probably the most famous here, Boaz, if you know the story of Ruth, uh, Ruth uh, is a woman who is married to a Moabite man, and she and her, uh, I guess, mother-in-law, Naomi, the men in their family die, and Naomi is originally, you know, part of the people of Israel, and she says, I'm going back to my people, and Ruth says, I don't have anywhere to go. Can you can you take me with you? I want to go with you. And thus she does. And she goes into the nation of Israel. She goes back uh, to the Israelites. Naomi does, taking Ruth with her. And while there, uh, Boaz, uh, a righteous man, recognizes Ruth. Now, Ruth is a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Recognizes Ruth and uh, falls in love with her, you know, I will uh, spare you the details, but falls in love with her 
and marries her. And the result of that, um, the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed, Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed uh, and Obed becomes the father of Jesse and Jesse becomes the father of King David. So King David's grandparents, or I should say King David is the offspring of a intercultural marriage, you might say. Now that's a di diversion from what we find in you know, the Jewish tradition. You, want, you wanted your, your, your bloodline to be pure, but already uh, we're seeing in the gospel of Matthew, there is this openness to, uh, to Gentiles being part of the fold and wanting to emphasize, hey, look, you know, it's not like we have pure Jewish blood that goes all the way back to, <laughs> you know, all the way back to Abraham. In fact, some of the most important people in our history, King David, uh, he was the grandson of a intercultural marriage. Uh, yet David was the first Mashiach. So um, you're, you're starting to see, you know, some, first of all, the introduction of women into the genealogy. And then second of all, the introduction of this idea of um, intercultural marriage. So let, let me just stop there and see if you have any questions. So I wanna make sure that I'm doing this more frequently. And you will have to unmute if you do. All right, well, go ahead. Uh, uh, Dan, I had a uh, I had a friend who converted to who married a Jew and converted to Judaism, and uh, they uh, she she her name was June Elizabeth, and they changed her name to June Elizabeth Ruth because that is the name of converts to Judaism. Perfect. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And of course, going back to the story of Ruth and uh, Damon, did you 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 are most recently married? Uh, did you? Uh, did you have the, the verse from Ruth in your wedding? Where yeah. You go, I will go. Yeah. yeah, we did. Yeah, where you go, I will go. Your people shall be my people. Your God right. shall be my God. Yeah. Where they bury you, they're going to bury me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, beautiful, very beautiful. And, and a lot of people don't realize, I mean, that that's, if you just hear it spoken, you think it's a woman speaking to a man, but it's a woman speaking to another woman there. Uh, in a, mm -hmm. you know, in a familial kind of way. Um, yeah, so, so Ruth is added to this. Let me, let me go through this next group of names. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Okay, there's another. You might remember Uriah the Hittite was married to Bathsheba. Uriah was a Gentile. Uh, and Solomon was the offspring of that, uh, that unhappy union. Uh, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph. I'm going to jump all the way down. Uh, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And now we're up into the, uh, the end of the Babylonian captivity right now. Uh, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, Salathiel, the father of Zerubbabel, on down the line, Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of, um, of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. 
you think, you know, if I were a newspaper editor or if I were a book editor, I'd say, can we cut this out? You know, this, <laughs> this really isn't the best introduction to a gospel, is it? You know, you, you want me to believe this is good news, but you're making me wade through all these names I hardly pronounce. It is absolutely essential for Matthew that this uh, gospel begin this way because he's going to establish Jesus as a Jewish Messiah who legitimately falls in the line of Abraham, David, and um, uh, the Jewish people in general. So now I'm at uh, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Nice round number, seven times two, seven, the perfect number. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So what do we have there? 52 generations or so that, uh, that lead all the way up from the time of Abraham to uh, the time of, um, uh, of Jesus, roughly about 2,000 years. And actually, you know, if a generation is 40 years, uh, that's how that works out. About 2,000 years ago, that's when Abraham existed. Now, many people will say, well, there it is. We're, we're writing history now. No, we're not writing history. Uh, there is no historical evidence that, that really any of these people even going back, I mean, before King David, well, let me try to find a place in here. Uh, Ahaz and Hezekiah, uh, which would have been around the seven, 700 BCE, we have some evidence that they existed. But prior to that, we don't even have historical evidence that David existed, let alone Abraham uh, before them. So this isn't history. This is mythology. This is placing Jesus in the context of this grand cosmic narrative that has at its core salvation history. Jesus is the united oh. one. Dan, um, yeah, um, please. Could, could, could I break in just, just a second here? Um, as, you're, as you're reading that genealogy, what that, what that also makes me think of is something that, that you always have in an epic, you know, in in any epic, and of course, this is an epic story, sure. but an epic will have catalogs, you know, lists of things, like right. the catalogs of, sh catalog of, of ships in the Iliad, and, you know, there are catalogs in, in um, just about any epic. And so, and so what's, if we're looking at the type of literature that this is, Right. It, I think, can be more than one type, and one of the types is the epic, and that just kind of adds to, to the importance of, of, of what you're reading there, of the right. story. Right, so. right. Absolutely. Um, and what also, what makes this interesting also is, if you compare this genealogy to the genealogy found in, in Luke. Now Luke does it differently. Instead of starting with Abraham and moving back and moving forwards, he starts with Jesus and moves backwards and takes it all the way back, not just to Abraham, but to Adam. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think he goes all the way back to Adam? And it has to do with his audience so Luke is writing to a original sin on us. What's that? What's that, Dwight? 
so they can lay original sin on all of us. <laughs> uh, well, that's, yeah, that's a possibility. In fact, that's kind of connected, but original sin hasn't developed yet. Uh, uh, that comes with Augustine, but, but because Adam is the father of all nations, right? Adam's the father of all people. We're not just talking about the father Abraham. Luke writing the Gentiles is going to establish a genealogy that places Jesus as the exemplar of humanity, not the exemplar of the Jewish uh, tradition. Now, the interesting thing about Luke's uh, genealogy, oh, I'm running out of time already. We won't get through all this. Interesting thing about Luke's genealogy is that um, it's, it, it completely does not match up with, <laughs> with Matthew's genealogy. It goes from Joseph to, uh, now I can't remember his name, but, but the, names, the names start diverging within one generation from Jesus. And what, Matt, what Luke is doing is he's tracing Jesus' lineage back through Mary and not through Joseph. And this leads us to the very Jewish aspect of this uh, first chapter. Because if you know the story, as it's been painted by so many people, most, most beautifully, I think, by um, da Vinci, um, of the annunciation of the angel to Mary and the Magnificat uh, that, that Mary speaks, you know, uh, how blessed she is that she's the carrier. We don't find any of that in Matthew, right? The annunciation in good Jewish fashion is to Joseph. Mary is kind of like a, a side issue here, but immediately <laughs> you have questions that arise. So let me start in reading uh, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, you know, Matthew's gonna make sure you know that, Jesus, the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, Yeshua in Aramaic. For he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua means uh, he is our savior. God is our savior. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph, Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son and he named him Yeshua, or Jesus. We've just been presented with a problem, haven't we? We've been given this long genealogy that's going all the way back through Joseph, the father of Jesus, but we're finding out that Joseph wasn't even the father. He had nothing to do with it. He had no skin in that game. <laughs> Right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, what do you do with that, right? Wait a minute. You just wasted 16 verses on me telling me that Jesus was the son of Joseph 
who was a son of Mathan and on, on the way back to Abraham. And now you're telling me that Jesus was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Well, that does create a problem, doesn't it? And it's a problem that Luke tries to uh, address in his genealogy. He traces Jesus' lineage back through Mary, which does two things. It helps to establish Jesus once again in the Jewish uh, tradition, but it also introduces something that's not introduced here is the importance of women in this, this wonderful story, right? This annunciation is not to Mary. Mary is incidental in this. These, this is man, man's business, right? They're the ones doing the negotiating. Um, uh, Joseph has a wonderful dream life, doesn't he? I mean, throughout this, throughout these two chapters, Joseph is, is <laughs> spoken to by an angel, you know, three times. An angel appears to him in a dream, um, reminiscent of Joseph of the Old Testament uh, as well, who was an interpreter of dreams. But Jesus is is given um, at least a uh, demi, uh, demigod character here. One of the interesting things about the Gospels is, is that if you read the Gospel of Mark, though Jesus is referred to as son of God and son of David and all these things, it's never clear that Mark thinks that Jesus is actually God, you know. Jesus is a man chosen by God through whom the spirit is working. But now 15, 20 years later, as Mark, Matthew and Luke are writing their gospels, Jesus has like many of the Greek gods of the time period, uh, partial divinity. He is a product of heaven and earth. He is at least partially God conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um, and his name is very important, Yeshua, you know, he is our salvation. Well, let me, let me stop there and see if there are any questions, especially uh, regarding, you know, the conception of the Holy Spirit. I should point out that Mark does not have a birth story. Mark just picks up with Jesus, you know, uh, baptized by John, uh, hitting the ground running, and uh, you know, moving right into his right into his ministry. But when you have a birth story, uh, you know, you people obviously were asking questions. Well, you know, what what was this kid like? You know, the, uh, where was he for thirty years prior to you know this this coming in and. You know, people claiming that he's the Messiah. Well, the birth story is a means by which Jesus is legitimized as the Messiah, but it also creates problems. Now you have people able to ask questions. Okay, Jesus was born, and then 30 years later, he, uh, he's baptized, or 29 or so years later, he's baptized by John the Baptist. What was he like before then? Especially if he's got, uh, you know, semi-godlike, semi-divine qualities. I mean, was he going around, you know, zapping his friends who, you know, were <laughs> picking on him on the playground? And believe it or not, <laughs> there are gospels like the the infancy gospel of um, 
Thomas, the infancy gospel of James, um, actually it's the infancy gospel of Thomas that talks about all these stories of Jesus making, you know, clay sparrows and throwing them up in the air. And he's like a little magician almost. So, you know, you, you've opened the door to this kind of speculation, but let's talk about the fulfilling of the prophecy. And I, I want to emphasize here, and I really want to keep track of our time. I want to emphasize here that when we're talking about fulfilling prophecy, we can't think of it in terms of, oh, you know, who are, who are those prophets, like, you know, common day prophets who have a, a magic ball, crystal ball. They're looking into the future, you know, and, and, and they're predicting events that are going to happen. That's, that's not what prophecy is in the Old Testament. That's divining. Uh, there were so-called prophets in the ancient Near East who, you know, before a battle, for example, would kill a sheep or a goat or, and would take out its entrails, cut them open, and by reading the entrails or reading tea leaves, that kind of thing, uh, would figure if, if it was a propitious day for, uh, for going into battle. That is absolutely nothing to do with what the Hebrew prophets are all about. So when we say this is done to fulfill the prophecy, let's not think about this prophecy. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, uh, you know, which comes from Isaiah 7, uh, 14. Let's not look at that as something that is a prediction of something that's going to happen years on down the line. When Isaiah was writing that prophecy, he was trying to interpret events through the will of God and through the covenant. What was happening is that uh, uh, the King Ahaz and his son Hezekiah, well, we're not sure if Hezekiah was born yet, but King Ahaz was trying to decide if he should go to war against this crazy Assyrian uh, army that was descending from the north. He decided not to. And in the midst of that, the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, look, everything's going to be fine. Trust God, and this will be the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive, and she will bear a son. And later on, it says, by the time that you know he's old enough to discern the good from the bad, those people who want you to go to war with them, they're going to be wiped out. But you will, you know, Hold the, hold the fort, you, you will maintain you know, relative safety. Um, it, it's a long history that goes into that, but we have to read it in that context. Now this, so it's not predicting the coming of a Messiah 700 years after that fact. Isaiah was trying to address the situation at hand. Look, God is going to give us a child and this, that the sign that that child is given is going to be that God is with us in this, in this war that is about to descend upon us. So what, what about this fulfilling of prophecy? What Matthew is trying to do is to establish Jesus in a kind of typology. And he's going to do this in four or five other uh, uh, prophetic allusions here. Jesus fulfills a typology it's not that Isaiah was predicting Jesus' birth 700 years down the line, but just as we are in a very difficult situation now uh, and God gives a child and it, it's seen as a sign, so it, it was with, um, 
with King Ahaz and King Hezekiah, uh, you know, in 722 BCE, when, you know, when Israel could have been destroyed. God is with us, Emmanuel. Now, let me, let me uh, burst a bubble here for you, if I haven't done so already. This is this verse, this fulfillment of this prophecy is the foundation of the idea of the virgin birth. Um, the term virgin here is not the translation of the Hebrew term. The Hebrew term uh, Alma, look, an Alma, a young woman of birthing age, a young woman who is past puberty will uh, conceive and bear a son. It has nothing to do with her you know, sexual purity. What happened when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, you know, into what's called the Greek Septuagint, I think that was around the second century BCE, the Greek translation took the, the Hebrew word Alma and gave it the word Parthenos, which means someone who is of sexual purity, who has not had sexual intercourse. Uh, and of course, that Greek was translated into Latin and into English. And we have been given this idea that Mary was a virgin. She had not had <clears throat> any kind of sexual relations. Um, that's not what the original prophecy had in mind. But of course, the Roman Catholic Church, as well as you know, the Protestants, have taken up this idea that Jesus must have been born of a virgin. And this gets into uh, Dwight's idea of original sin, uh, the assumption of Mary, or excuse me, the uh, immaculate conception of Mary and all these, uh, these issues that try to get around how Jesus could have been born of a woman, but not sinful. Uh, well, the first step in that procedure is that that Mary did not have any kind of sexual relations with anybody. Uh, and that has always been conceived as a kind of a, you know, a blemish on the human, um, on human character, on, on the human body. Uh, so, so it brings into question the whole development of the idea of the virgin birth. Now I know somebody's got to have a question about that. So I'm going to stop and I'm, I'm going to look to Kathy Amio and Bob Amio, because they seem to have this kind of uh, background. And so, any questions? So, no questions, but I think Anne might be able to speak to the, the concept of the virgin birth as something that is um, significant for um, a person of, of importance, because um, I think it happens in other cultures, right? There's other stories of, of virgin birth just signifying the importance of the person um, yeah, I mean, the, I, I'm recognizing why I like Luke, um, cause Luke's always been my favorite gospel, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's just my only point is I think there's some significance there. Um, and, and the Puritanism, I think of, you know, the early church about how, Ooh, sex is evil. Um, never understood it, but that's okay. Yeah. You're, you're right that it happens in other cultures, the Buddha. Uh, it, it's, it's almost an exact same story. And in fact, uh, the, the Buddha pops out of um, Queen Maya's side, even to show that he wasn't even born through, as they say, feces and urine, right? Uh, in the midst of feces and urine, <laughs> that whole 
blemishing process that goes on when you're born. No, he did it in a very clean way, just kind of popped out of the, you know, Queen Maya's side. Um, but, but the mythological aspect of this is that we're looking at someone who is, who is, who stands above, you know, some of the, the common um, weaknesses of, of human beings. We're looking at an extraordinary person here without getting into the details, but this person has cosmic significance. He's fulfilling a typology that was very important. In fact, I mean, if it weren't for this prophecy, it's possible that the whole uh, Jewish or Israelite uh, culture would have been destroyed by the Assyrians. So um, <clears throat> very, very important. I, I think I do want to just try to emphasize though that what we're talking about here is not Jean Dixon looking into her crystal ball. This is Matthew looking at the life of Jesus and looking back at the prophets and saying, look at how similar Jesus is to all of these prophecies. And that's what it means to fulfill that. So let's um, move on. And again, I'm not going to have enough time. I'm so sorry. Uh, let's go on to chapter two. Um, and I'll just, I'll just read this. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where's the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you shall come, from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. Let's just stop there. That's from Micah, uh, the prophet Micah. Also, by the way, uh, a prophet who was writing at the time when Isaiah uh, was writing that earlier prophecy. What is the significance of Bethlehem? Who else was born in Bethlehem? David. Bethlehem is it? Go ahead. David. Yeah, David. Yeah. Uh, Bethlehem was the uh, was the geographical region where one of the small tribes, the, the tribe of Jesse, uh, or excuse me, the you know the tribe of Judah, and had its clan of Jesse, um, that the youngest and most insignificant of the brothers of uh, Jesse's sons was chosen as the, uh, as the king, uh, you know, or as uh, God's chosen uh, king to be anointed. But let's, let's talk about who Herod was because what Matthew is doing here is juxtaposing two types of kings of the Jews. Herod was a king who was appointed by the Romans. In fact, he did a lot of grifting on his own to get this uh, appointment. Um, Herod, uh, Herod was somebody who was whose family was forcibly converted to Judaism during the Hasmonean dynasty. And this is when the Hasmoneans in the uh, second century uh, to the middle of the first century started to expand their empire wanting to be like the King David of old. And they took over a region called Idumea. 
And Idumea was where uh, Herod uh, would be born. And so Herod grew up as a nominal Jew. And so in the year 37, or from, you know, about 45 to 37, Herod, Herod is ingratiating himself, himself to, the, um, to the Romans, saying, hey, look, I'm a Jew. I know these people. You ought to put me in charge in Jerusalem. And of course, you know, as political people tend to do throughout history, he had no interest in representing the Jews. He only had an interest in, you know, representing himself. So he became vastly wealthy. Yeah, and imposing taxes on the Jews over and against the temple tax, over against the Roman tax. Herod was the person who was breaking the backs of the Jews. So if you were a Jew living in Herod's uh, Jerusalem, you had to pay the tax to the Romans. You had to pay the temple tax, you know, to the chief priests and, uh, you know, for, for sacrifices and things like that in the temple. And now you had to pay, uh, well, let's call it the state tax, you know, which was enormous. And Herod used this money to, well, he built the temple in Jerusalem, actually, uh, but he built all kinds of palaces for himself. Um, I'm not sure if there were gold toilets in them, but you kind of get the picture. <laughs> you know, he was that kind of person. The Magi, and the, so Herod, according to the story, is concerned that this child is going to take over his, his very powerful domain. Uh, note is note what's missing in this though. We don't see a child being born in a manger. We don't see angels appearing to shepherds who are watching their flocks by night. Uh, we don't see this, you know, I bring to you glad tidings for unto you is born this day in the city of David. Matthew picks up after Jesus is already born. And it's almost, uh, you know, kind of the side comment. When the Magi find Jesus, he's in a house in Jerusalem, right? So uh, the whole story of the manger and the angels, that's a story that's told to Luke's audience. The story of the Magi looking for a king, looking for a legitimate king that even the cosmos recognizes by the, you know, the, the, the star that's in the sky. This is what Matthew wants to tell to his audience. And this is foretold in the cosmos. This, this child has con will have control, uh, spiritual control, not just over you know, the Jewish people, but over the cosmos itself. And eventually, that's how we do come to understand Jesus. So let me, let me see if there are any questions uh, there. <clears throat> we know that the Magi do find Jesus, and they bring to him gifts of gold, uh, frankincense, and myrrh. And we look at this and say, oh, those are, you know, that, that's kind of an interesting array of gifts there. But the three magi bringing three gifts are acknowledging three aspects of Jesus, the Messiah. Gold represents that which is given to kings. Gold is the medal of kings. Frankincense is that, um, uh, that spice that actually it's a, a sap from a tree and it smells wonderful. It's one thing I don't like about being a Protestant is the, the smells and bells, you know, we don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> Frankincense, it smells wonderful. It's really great. 
but this is what would be burned in the temple, which gives um, uh, credence to this idea that Jesus is the new high priest. So we have Jesus as king, we have Jesus as high priest, but now we have this outlier called myrrh. Myrrh was a, an herb, a, a spice that was used uh, for embalming bodies. Uh, very, very fragrant, very aromatic, uh, covered up the stench of death, you know, until the body could be entombed. Um, giving a child myrrh is like, <laughs> It's like today, hey, congratulations, Lynn, on, uh, uh, I can't remember, Louisa being born. Uh, I've got you this nice burial plot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's, here's a coupon for her funeral arrangements. Uh, so, uh, you know, one of those wise men just, you know, was a little bit socially awkward, obviously. <laughs> No, I mean, it, it's, it's not the matter of the fact, factuality of these gifts. It's a matter of what they represent. Murder represents the prophetic aspect of Jesus', um, of Jesus life. The fact that he would meet the end that most prophets meet uh, or that most prophets are, are usually, he would be an, uh, an outcast and eventually would die. So even as you know, as a good narrative writer will do, will give an, an intimation of what is coming towards the end of the story. And the myrrh's the thing, the myrrh is the intimation for, for Jews who are reading this. Ah, yeah, myrrh. Oh, I know what's going on here. But this child is a child that's born to die, which really adds a dynamic to the story that, um, um, you know, that we can pick up on if you're in, in a Jewish uh, community here. Um, I'm going to move on here. <clears throat> talking about how Jesus, and I only have seven minutes, but talking how G about how Matthew wants also not just to establish Jesus in the line of Abraham and in the line of David, but speaking of prophets, uh, the one to whom the myrrh is given, Jesus wants, Matthew wants to portray Jesus in the line of Moses, or at least in the spiritual line of Moses as well. And so you know how the story goes. Uh, Herod finds out that he's tricked by the wise men. They don't return to tell him about, uh, you know, where the child is. And so Herod, wanting to make sure that he's got all of his bases covered, sends an army into, into uh, let me see if it's Jerusalem. Yeah. And, um, well, let me read it. Um, now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph has a great dream life. Get up and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophets out of Egypt. I have called my son. That prophecy is from Hosea, referring, of course, to the son, the Israelites being brought out of Egypt. But giving a tip of the hat, so to speak, to the story of Moses, just as Moses was born into adversity under a pharaoh who was 
really concerned about his power being undermined by these crazy Hebrews that were just having child after child after child. And my gosh, how long is it going to be until they just overrun all of Egypt? You better kill some of them. So, you know, Pharaoh kills the first, or the, the male child of the Hebrews. Herod, similarly here, feeling threatened by a new king, a messiah, goes into uh, Jerusalem. And there you can hear the voice was heard from Ramah wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel reaching for, weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. This is from Jeremiah. Um, uh, we're not we're not historically sure that anything like this ever happened. I mean, certainly uh, the Romans who keep great records would have known about killing every male child at the, uh, at the um, or yeah, killing every child, is it? Uh, he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under. So killing, killing every child. In Bethlehem. Now that could be just male children because you know women don't count, females don't count in this, <laughs> in this, in this culture. But, but certainly if you are a Jewish Christian and you, you are uh, reading this story, what's happening in your mind is, wow, that's just like what happened with Moses. You know, he was put in this basket and he was saved. He was sent out among the reeds. And when the time was right, he was brought back to, uh, to do uh, God's will for the world. But he overcame adversity uh, through a, a kind of uh, sleight of hand, so to speak. So Joseph does take uh, Jesus and Mary into Egypt. And then when Herod dies, Herod died about 4 BCE. And there's this really interesting reference here. I won't be able to find it. Um, but when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea, after Herod dies, his son Archelaus takes over in Judea. Uh, 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 in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Joseph was afraid to go back uh, to Judea. And after warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he will be called the Nazarene. And that's nowhere to be found in the prophets. We, we don't know where that comes from. So Matthew obviously had a different prophet in mind. But Archelaus, he was a person who was probably, uh, who probably would have done this kind of massacre. Archelaus, the son of Herod, when Herod uh, died, the area known today as, as Israel was divided up into what are called tetrarchies and Archelaus got the tetrarchy of Judea. And he was so crazy that the Romans said, this guy's too much, we gotta get rid of him because he was killing people right and left. You know, he was hanging them up, torturing people, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, you're pretty bad when the Romans <laughs> are getting rid of you. Hey, this guy's way beyond the pale. And so it was Archelaus that was gonna be replaced by a prefect in Judea. And that prefect, uh, I'm not sure if Pilate was the first one, I think he was, uh, came, became Pontius Pilate. And so uh, the story of the Herods, you know, 
is, is one that uh, coincides with the story of Jesus throughout the Gospels. Herod is seen, Herod, King Herod the Great and his sons, Herod Antipas and Archelaus, and even his grandson Agrippa, are seen as examples of the bad king of the Jews, uh, a type of uh, antagonist throughout all of this. Um, so I think that's the end. I wanted to um, remind you, if, you've, if you know about uh, Peter Bruegel, and this is yeah. Peter Bruegel the Younger. Peter Bruegel uh, painted a painting uh, in the middle, I think about around the fifth, middle of the 1500s, 16th century, called The Slaughter of the Innocents. And what he did is he took this metaphor and applied it to his, you know, the circumstances of his day, living in uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, that area. It was a time when Protestants were starting to, um, Huguenots were starting to uh, draw away from the Catholic Church. And there was kind of this counter-reformation where the King of Spain sent out um, soldiers to round up Huguenots. And, uh, and Bruegel lived in the middle of this. And uh, this is one of his paintings depicting uh, the Spanish soldiers, you know, killing children in his, um, uh, in his hometown of Brussels. Or, or I guess it, it, it would have been somewhere in the um, uh, Netherlandish region there, Belgium. Um, not an art historian, so I'm not very good at these things, but uh, this, this story has had its effect throughout history um, and especially uh, during the Protestant Reformation. So let me stop, I think we're right at our time. Damon needs to go off and go to church. Do, do you have any comments or questions before we go? Thank you, Dan. Yeah, I'm so sorry I'm rushing through all of this. When we come back Thank next you, week, we're just gonna focus on Matthew 25 next week, uh, which will be the sermon topic and probably the most important, I guess, you know, pericope section of uh, verses in Matthew. Uh, for social justice. So thank you. And I will uh, leave everyone. Uh, I need to. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Good seeing everybody. Good to see you. Bye. Thank you, Dan. Thanks. Bye. Uh, yeah. Congratulations, Lynn. Thank you. Congratulations. Talk to you soon. <laughs>